Good morning. Well, I uh, thoroughly enjoyed being here. I uh, love your worship here this morning, and it is a privilege to be here. I, we think about you guys often, pray for you quite a bit, and really care about you and what's going on here, because this is a significant thing here. So it's an honor to be here. And so uh, character matters. And as we watch the election, as we watch the politics, as we watch things going on in our world, and we think, we've got nothing but bad character. Where's the good stuff, you know? And I, be honest with you, we probably all get really disillusioned over all this. And so, but when we look at the church, a lot of time the church isn't all that much better either, unfortunately. When you look at the big picture in the United States, uh, the church doesn't always, is not doing all that well. Some are closing their doors. In our neck of the woods, woods some people are leaving the church and going to another one because that church has a problem. And so even the church struggles with that. How about you? What kind of a character are you? What kind of character do you have? And so character matters to God. Therefore, really has to matter to us. And it matters to me. And so... Character transformation is part of the new identity in Christ. When Jesus comes into your life, how can God come into your life and not change you? That's what I, you know, he has to change you. He changes your affections, changes your whole sense of direction. And he cleans up our life and he gives us meaning and purpose. And he begins to transform us into a bozo, I don't know what that really means, but maybe not someone so good, but he's transforming you into the person of Christ, which is much more a good thing. And so, uh, and this transformation is important because there's this principle, our identity, our identity. So who we are is more important than what we do because who we are determines what we do. It's a cause-effect relationship. It's like physics. Okay, who we are, whatever's going on in here will eventually come out. And so Jesus is vastly interested in whatever's going on in this thing called our heart, this computer that runs our lives. And so today I want to talk about how Peter viewed character. And he was quite the character, wasn't he? And so uh, to do this, I want to kind of tell a story about him. And... Uh, and this story takes place in Mark chapter 9. You don't have to turn there if you don't want to, but if you do, I don't want to dis discourage you from doing that. I want to talk about four events, and uh, I just love this. This really made a big difference in my life about three years ago when I read this. So Mark chapter 9 starts off with the transfiguration. So Jesus took Peter, James, and John. They went up to a high mountain, and when he was there... He was transfigured, meaning his clothes became really bright, and there was this, like the glory of God was breaking through. And not only that, but there was the Elijah and Moses. Holy cow! <laughs> Moses and Elijah! And Peter, James, and John, I don't know how they knew it was, I mean, there was no pictures of these guys, so how did they know? Maybe it was a name tag, I'm not sure. But they were there, and Peter says, Hey, it's good that we're here. I want to fix this three tents. And, uh, you know, he, and he says, and he said that because he didn't know what to do and he was terrified. 
I, yeah. And right after that, if it wasn't enough, God's voice speaks, a cloud descends, and a voice from heaven saying, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. And just like that, it was over. They're all gone, and it's just the three disciples and Jesus. And I can only imagine, what, what just happened here? And so the next scene, they, they walk down to the mountain, and they come up to a scene where the other nine disciples are. There's a large crowd, and there is a man there, a father who brought his son there, who was cruelly demon-possessed. This kid would just fall on the ground. He gives a lot of details there about this. So this father asked the nine disciples, will you heal, uh, heal my son? They couldn't do it. And they're all frustrated. There was an argument. Jesus comes down, takes control, as you would imagine. And he casts the demon out of this kid. The kid gets up and all is good and everyone's marveling. And the disciples in a private moment said, how come we couldn't do that? And then the next thing, they're walking up towards Galilee, up towards Capernaum, and Jesus tells them that the Son of Man is going to be crucified, he's going to be buried, and he's going to rise again. This was the second of three times that he said that. And the disciples just kind of, they didn't understand it, were kind of confused. Can you imagine? The guy that you're following, your hero, says, guys, I'm going to die, and I'm going to be buried and I'm going to be raised from the dead. And, and their jaw just drops. I mean, who does that? No one does that except Jesus. Of course, they didn't quite get it at that point. And then the, the next scene is the one that <laughs> I just love. And so they're in Capernaum. Capernaum is a town on the northern side of the Sea of Galilee. It's kind of a base of operations. And on their way up there, they had a discussion. And so Jesus asked them, what were you guys talking about? on the way up, and they say nothing. They're silent because they were arguing over who was the greatest. And I'm just thinking, are you kidding me? You, you guys, uh, you, great is probably not a good adjective for you at this point. Thankfully, Jesus in his patience, he kind of grabs them, sits them down, and he has them sit down and he says this, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all, and servant of all. Wow. It's interesting. He never rebuked them for their aspirations for greatness. But he did change their definition of greatness. And then in Mark chapter 10, the next chapter, he defines this, unpacks this idea a little bit more. Mark 10, starting in 43. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Are you kidding me? <laughs> I want to be great. I want to be, I want to be the boss. I want to be the C CEO. And whoever would be first among you must be a slave. Bondservant. And then verse 45, which I would say is almost the key passage to the book of Mark. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom. For the many. That's our Savior. Wow. He just blows everybody's circuits. So Jesus is saying that if you want to be a leader in the church, which I hope you all do, we must humbly serve one another. Can I say it again? Humbly serve one another. 
One writer said the character trait of humility is second, is the second most frequently taught trait in the New Testament, only to love. Humility. But you know what? I struggle with pride. God. Stubbornness. I am a stubborn person. You could ask my wife over here. And uh, boy, just an arrogant, I think I don't need help. I, I got my act together. Jesus, you just come in when I need you, and I can kind of take care of this sector of life. Pride can keep us from honesty, transparency with others, doesn't it? We're not going to be transparent because if I share some weakness with you, you're going to think I'm a weak person. But I really am a weak person. Pride locks us into secret sins even for a long time. Pride can lock us into what Psalm 19 calls hidden faults, presumptuous sins. Wow. And there's a cross-reference to that in Numbers 15 that says the sin of a high hand. It's like this. Shaking your fist in front of God. Pride corrupts our motives to become impure and self-centered. Pride creates arguments, division, and that lead to unresolved conflicts. Anybody have unresolved conflicts in your life? We have a son-in-law, uh, lives in Florida, married to our daughter, obviously, but uh, man, he won't talk with us. This has been going on for some time. We've had some talks. We can't even initiate a discussion with that. It's so frustrating. He's a believer. And so we're just trying, we don't know really what to do. And I'm sure all of that, there's pride on our side, pride on his side. Pride fuels competition. Now, all competition isn't bad, but competition really can be that way. C.S. Lewis, in his book, Mere Christianity, it's a good book to read. Here's a, there's a chapter in there called The Great Sin. Don't read that if you want a comfortable life. Because it talks about sin as being possibly the root of all the sins that come out of us. It's a big deal. So, 30 years after the ascension of Jesus to heaven, Peter writes 1 Peter. I mean, 30 years later. And so, we're going to be looking at 1 Peter 5, verses 1 through 4. Ah, technology. So, let me read that. So, I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. I'm looking forward to that day. I'm looking forward to Jesus' return more than ever in my life. Okay, verse 1 gives us the basis of Peter's appeal to the, to the elders there. There's three things here. Number one, he is an elder also. And so if you remember in Acts chapter 2 when the church started, Peter was right there in the middle of the church. He was a leader in the church in Jerusalem. Uh, number two, he witnessed the sufferings of Christ. I mean, we tend to forget about that. Over those 30 years from the crucifixion up to the time that he wrote it, you wonder how many times he talked about what he saw 
happened in Jerusalem on that day. Tell us again, what was it like? And I'm sure he told them, you wouldn't believe what I did. I denied my Savior three times. He told me I was going to do it. I told him, absolutely not, I'll die for him. And I did it. And I cried like a baby with bitterness. But you know what? Jesus loved me. He restored me on that beach. In John, the end of the chapter, it says, will you love me? Will you love me? Will you love me? <laughs> wow. And in the, number three, he will join in the future reward of all that the faithful will receive. Twice in this passage talks about the future day when Christ is going to return, when everything is going to be made right. And he talks about that. And then the manner in which the elders were to shepherd the church. And you may think, well, I'm not an elder of the church, but we are members of the church. And really, this isn't all that different. This book, this chap, this, yeah, this book went out through, uh, you remember, you know, are you, are you geographically challenged? Do you know where the country of Turkey is? So it's kind of like this. And it is all those provinces on the north and over the south, the only part that it wasn't sent to was the little section underneath. It's amazing. This went out to all kinds of people. All kinds of people back then were reading it, the same thing we were reading now. And so, the manner in which the elders were to shepherd the church, we have three negatives followed by three positives here. I kind of like charts. Sorry. So, the first negative, as we shepherd the flock we're not supposed to do it under compulsion not because you have to but be willingly as god would have you it's a privilege it's an honor would you want a leader to say in your church that has his arm twisted i have to do that no it's not to say you shouldn't be sobered by it but at the same time uh we want to be willing not for shameful game, or as the NIV would translate it, not greedy for money, but eagerly. Not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock, or proving to be examples, the NAS said. Proving to be examples, that really got me. What kind of an example are you to the flock around you? So, lest you think uh, this is, doesn't pertain to you. I'm going to make you miserable along with me and show you the power and importance of being a good example. John 13, Jesus said this, If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. Why? Because I have given you an example that you should also do just as I have done to you. And it's more than just washing someone's feet. It's the example of being a servant. And he took on an apron and he went around and washed their feet. The creator of the universe gets down and washes their feet? Wow. If he did it, how, how much more should it be for us too? In Philippians, brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the, the example that you have in us. And then in Thessalonians, I love this one. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example. Notice to who? To all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. And in 1 Timothy 4, Paul tells 
his young disciple, let no one despise you for your youth, but set for the believers there an example in five areas. Think about these. In speech, how is your speech, your communication with your spouse, with your kids, with your employer, with people in here? That one's very convicting for me. Uh, in conduct, in love, we sang a lot about love here, but do we do it when we leave here? And in, purity, in faith and in purity. And so uh, an example is so important. We are an example. I am an example. And so uh, we need to be very mindful of that. A long time ago, I was on a, when I was 25, 1975, give you a little historical context, uh, a friend and I, we wanted to go to Canada and Alaska, so we had a pickup with a camper and we went up the west coast, we went up into Alaska and Canada and came back, awesome trip. My friend was a believer, he was a Baptist, so he's one of them folk. And so I was kind of in the process of becoming a Christian, but Bruce, man, he would read his Bible, he would talk to me about it as much as I'd want to talk to it. But then we'd also, if there was a hitchhiker, we stopped, we picked up the hitchhiker, I drove the truck, he was in the back of the camper fixing tea or coffee for this guy, and he'd be witnessing to this guy in the back of the camper. And this happened numerous times. I was kind of embarrassed, I think, gee whiz. And then if it was a Sunday and we we're in the right place, we found a Baptist church in some of the most obscure places up there because he wanted to go to church. He was an example that still speaks to me to this day. So, and then in verse 4, the reward from Jesus for shepherding well is a crown that was given for achievement. So the scripture talks about crowns and rewards. Not sure exactly what it is, but there's something good coming in the future because we have been faithful here in the past. It should be a motivation for us. So, uh, Roman numeral 2, Peter commands and pleads for humility towards one another. Verse 5 through 7. And for the younger men, you younger men out there, be subject to the elders. Likewise, verse 1, or I'm sorry, verse 5. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. I was in the army one time, and uh, I had no life. I was a private first class. I was the bottom of the bottom. Everyone bossed me around. Because I mean, that's in the nature of the military forces, you know. You submit to, you subject yourself to them, and that's just the way it works. How much more so would be, be subject to the elders in a church and ultimately to God? And then nextly, verse B, not nextly, for everyone, humble yourself toward one another. Five through seven. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another. Why? For God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties upon him or on him because he cares for you. Troublesome passage. But it's the truth. Humility and pride, the contrast that is really talked about from the, 
Genesis all the way through the end of the Bible. And the same principles come out. It's repeated and restated in different ways. God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So there's a picture of humility. I clothe yourself with humility. And clothe yourself has the idea of obviously putting on clothes and you would tie things down. And in this usage here, you would be tying on a servant's apron, kind of like Jesus did that. He took off his outer garment and he tied a towel around him or something like that. And so the idea is wearing humility as a slave's apron. A slave's apron. Tim Keller said this, the essence of gospel humility is not thinking more of myself or thinking less of myself. It is thinking of myself less. It means I stop connecting every experience, every conversation with myself. In fact, I stop thinking about myself. Wow. It's a challenge, but God does not ask us to do something that he doesn't help us with, right? He wants to help us humble ourselves. Humble people are much better people to be around than proudful people, okay? And I've got this slide up here. Let's talk a little bit more about slide. Uh, it's on pride and humility. Here we go. So, pride is thinking too highly of yourself. There's self-exaltation, self-exaggeration resulting in an unrealistic appraisal or attitude of superiority or conceit. And look at the one on the bottom because this, I kind of tried to separate these two because on the bottom, prideful people can also be one who just is thinking too lowly of himself, herself. Self-abasement self-deprecation oh you really i really couldn't do anything here at the church you really wouldn't want me to be a friend of yours kind of stuff like that and it results in an unrealistic appraisal also in an attitude of inferiority or false humility that's probably more me i'm probably the more introverted prideful person versus the outward expression prideful person. Remember Muhammad Ali, the great fighter? He said, I am the greatest. I am the greatest. And, you know, he really was pretty good. But, you know, <laughs> he shouldn't say that about himself. But what we want to be, we don't want to think too highly of ourselves. We don't want to think too lowly. But when we want to think of ourselves the way Jesus thinks about us and the way he wants us to think, and that's what humility is. You're empty of self and being Christ-centered resulting in an accurate appraisal of a healthy self-esteem or sound judgment, as Romans 12, 3 would say. So, I'm going to try to convince you, I'm going to give you four reasons why you want to, should work on being a humble person. Four. You shouldn't have to take four. One should be sufficient, but the Bible has given us four. Number one, God opposes the proud in verse 5. Can you imagine? I've got enough problems... But do you want God opposing you? But we don't think about that. And that's exactly what happens. Uh, in a story in Daniel about Belt, or Nebuchadnezzar. Remember him? Man, he was this great guy. And then the weird story, all, for seven years, God humbled him and made him like an animal. And he grazed out in the, 
in the pasture for seven years, and then he kind of came to his senses, and Nebuchadnezzar said, wow, I've been a proud person. God has humbled me. The next chapter, Nebuchadnezzar's son, Belteshazzar, you might want to write that name down for your next child's name, Belteshazzar. He was a guy who totally was arrogant, totally was prideful. This is the one in which the handwriting on the wall appeared, and he died because he was refusing to be humble. His dad was humbled. Son didn't do that. God is opposed to the proud. It says, set oneself against you. You don't want that. Second reason, God gives grace to the humble. You want more grace in your life. I mean, if I had a hypodermic needle here and I could give you a shot of 100 cc's of God's grace as we walk out the door today, it's going to make your week amazing. You're not going to do anything bad. Your wife is going to love you. Your husband's going to love you. The kids are going to be, oh, mom, how can I, what can I do? Can I do the dishes? I've got to do the dishes, you know. All that kind of stuff. 100 cc's, but it only lasts a week. His grace never runs out. So grace, in my one definition that I kind of latched on to over the years, grace is where God gives you an ability and a desire to do his will. He shapes you. God gives us grace to change. He gives us grace to grow. Number three, third reason, God will exalt you at the proper time. Sometime, we don't know when, but in the future, you might be getting some kind of relief from whatever it is, some kind of reward, or ultimately, we're going to go to heaven. And when you're in heaven, you have been delivered from all this. It's going to be really good. And so this is what we want to happen. And it will at the proper time. And lastly, number four, God cares for you. Cast your anxieties upon him because he cares for you. I struggled with this. Why, why anxiety? You know, I get it. I'm, I'm, I worry about everything. Tell me some of your problems. I'll worry about them tonight, okay? So why would this verse be right there? And I think what it is, is when we are confronted with being prideful and God wants us to release all this stuff and to really trust him by humbling ourselves, he will, uh, it creates some anxiety, but God, what if I have to say I'm sorry to my wife? She'll laugh at me and she'll say, finally, I got you. And we have this scorecard on our house there. Uh, her and she has all these marks and I have zero. It's embarrassing. <laughs> so true. <laughs> so he cares for you and we can cast our cares upon him. So I want to give you three ways you can humble yourself. Are you ready? Do you want this? Confess your sins to one another. James talks about that. And so I'm going to give you, I'm kind of script you. Can I script you? Is that okay? So something that my wife and I discovered is it's not, it's good that you can say you're sorry to your wife when you've sinned. But you know, sometimes we're sorry that we got caught. We're not really wanting to change. And so we use the phrase, Karen, will you forgive me for being so mean-spirited to you? Use the word forgive. And you, you fill it in specifically 
what you did wrong, how you sinned against your wife. And I, we would deal with it with our kids. I apologize and ask my kids for forgiveness numerous of times. You know, will you forgive me? I got, you know, and usually it was I got angry in my discipline. They needed discipline, but I went over the board. Will you forgive dad for being angry with you? Every time they said yes, thankfully. And so, uh, forgiveness means to stop feeling angry or resentful toward or vengeance toward somebody. Do you ever feel vengeance? For an offense, a flaw or mistake, to pardon, to forgive is to pardon, to cancel a debt. I'm no longer going to hold this anger over you. I'm not going to be resentful for you for the rest of my life for doing this. But sorry just means, and sorry is okay, but it means to feel regret or remorse for hurting somebody. But I think saying, will you forgive me for this, goes a lot step further. So, confess your sins to one another. Second, second one, second way you can humble yourself, talk less, listen more. Talk less, listen more. You know in Proverbs, it says that even if a guy or a woman, they don't say that much, they come across as being a very wise person. Doesn't mean you are, but you at least look that way. Maybe because when there are many words, transgression is unavoidable. Isn't that true? And so my listening rule is when you're listening to somebody, you're not talking. Up here, you're not thinking about your next response. You're actually thinking about what they're saying. And the third thing, you're actually looking at them in the eye. You're not looking at your time or the Bronco game or anything like that. And so, if you just want to listen, mouth is closed, thinking about what they're saying, and you're looking at them, and if you talk at all, it's a clarifying question. So, hon, when you say that I've been a jerk, can you kind of unpack that a little bit? <laughs> <laughs> Lastly, be less selfish. Be a giver and not a taker. Philippians 2. Philippians 2, like... Verses uh, 1 through 5 are worth memorizing. When I memorize, I tend to meditate. And when I memorize, meditate, I tend to, it goes with me and changes my life. So, so when you're humble, I've got a quote here I think that will be really helpful. When you're humble, you don't have to be afraid of what's in your heart. Are you afraid of what's in your heart? And you don't have to fear being known because there's nothing in you that could be exposed that hasn't already been covered by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. There's no sin in your life that shocks Jesus. Oh my gosh, Gabriel, where did this one come from? He's not caught off guard. Every sin, anything we've done, has been covered by the blood of Christ. If that's the case, if it is forgiven, why can't we be more transparent? Why can't we just say, this is who I really am? And that person may think, wow, you're really weird. Well, yes, I am, but I'm a forgiven weird. And so, that's what Jesus is all about. He wants to transform us. And nothing transforms us quite like the gospel. You know, the gospel saves us. 
We are justified by faith, but the gospel lived daily is in the sanctification process here. And every day we need to go to the cross. I've been mean. I've sinned. I've sinned against all, all the mosaic of sin. We can go to the gospel, and Jesus still forgives sin even today. And he transforms you. You don't just get older. You get better instead of bitter. You become more mature in this whole process. And living the gospel daily is something my wife and I kind of walked into a little bit late into the game, but it is absolute, absolutely important and transformational. And so what better way to do that than to celebrate the Lord's Supper right here? And we have the elements over here and on the right and the left. And so uh, let's, uh, let's celebrate the Lord's Supper. I guess there's some kind of protocol for coming up. There is? Okay, I don't know what it is, but they know. That's good.